I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about qualified immunity, the never-ending Supreme Court case, and we'll interview Supreme Court reporter Mark Walsh. So the court issued some opinions this week. The first was Casella v. Hughes, which is a qualified immunity case. And this was a per curiam opinion in which the court held that a police officer was entitled to qualified immunity because he didn't violate clearly established law in this case. So the facts in these cases are always so strange. The police received reports of a woman engaging in erratic behavior with a large kitchen knife. So she was like outside hacking a tree, (laughs) which is a big kitchen knife. And the officer showed up to find Amy Hughes holding this knife, walking towards another woman standing nearby. And the backstory gets even weirder. So this other woman was Hughes' roommate. And Hughes, who had a history of mental illness, was mad about the roommate owing her $20 And so the roommate came home to find her holding her dog, who is named Bunny, Mm -hmm. in one hand and this kitchen knife in the other, threatening to kill the dog. Seems Um, like a pretty reasonable reaction, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, Hughes was outside walking towards the roommate with the knife, and the officers commanded her to drop it at least twice, but she didn't comply. And believing that Hughes was a danger to the roommate, one of the officers shot and injured her. And Hughes sued the officer under Section 1983, alleging he had used excessive force in violation of the Fourth Amendment. The district court granted summary judgment to the officer in the first instance, but then the Ninth Circuit reversed, holding that his actions uh, violated clearly established law under circuit precedent. But the Supreme Court reversed and remanded the case, writing that an officer cannot be said to have violated a clearly established right unless the right's contours were sufficiently definite that any reasonable official in the defendant's shoes would have understood that he was violating it. And the court said the Ninth Circuit failed to implement that standard correctly. And then uh, Justice Sotomayor wrote an impassioned dissent. Justice Ginsburg joined her, writing that this decision tells officers they can shoot first and think later. And I'm not sure what the Ninth Circuit would have the officer do here. I mean, this is a decision he had to make in a split second, and he didn't know what this woman was going to do with her knife. And, yeah, you know, I know putting aside the uh, the problems that a lot of people have with the whole doctrine of qualified immunity, you know, it, it seems like, you know, maybe we shouldn't second-guess officers. You know, the, the woman survived, and I'm not saying it's okay for them to go around shooting people, but I'm not sure what the Ninth Circuit would have had him, him do in this case. Yeah, qualified immunity has got its problems that should definitely be, you know, thoughtfully considered. But we also don't want to discourage police officers from um, taking action in dangerous situations. And it's also easy for, you know, Justice Sotomayor to sit up there and say, oh, this tells officers they can shoot first and think later, when she's constantly, you know, guarded by an armed armed guard. (laughs) That's true. Um, Yeah, and she doesn't, you know, usually have her roommate, you know, coming Coming up to her with a knife. knife. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, Moving on to the never-ending Supreme Court case, Encino Motor Cars versus Navarro. Uh, so the court issued its decision. This is the second time the court heard the case and the second time the court reversed the Ninth Circuit. So the issue here is whether the overtime pay requirements of the Fair Labor Standards Act apply to service advisors at car dealerships. The act has an exemption that applies to any salesman, partsman, or mechanic primarily engaged in selling or servicing automobiles, trucks, or farm 
implements. So the court ruled 5-4 that this exemption does apply to service advisors, reversing the Ninth Circuit once again. Justice Thomas wrote the opinion, joined by the Chief Justice and Kennedy, Alito, and Gorsuch. And he wrote that uh, service advisors are salesmen who are primarily engaged in servicing automobiles. He turned to his trusty Oxford English Dictionary, second edition, for the definition of servicing, which in this context can mean the action of maintaining or repairing a motor vehicle or the action of providing a service. He remarked, if you ask the average customer who services his car, the primary primary and perhaps only person he's likely to identify is his service advisor. I wonder if uh, Justice Thomas had a deep interest in this case because of, you know, he has this bus and <laughs> he probably needs to get it repaired. Yeah. So. <laughs> the court also dismissed the Ninth Circuit's reliance on legislative history. Specifically, the Ninth Circuit noted that the legislative history discusses automobile salesmen, partsmen, and mechanics, but never discusses service advisors specifically. Thomas wrote that silence in the legislative history, no matter how clanging, cannot defeat the better reading of the, of the text or statutory context. Uh, and Justice Ginsburg dissented, joined by Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, writing that service advisors are a fourth category that's not covered by the three occupations in the statutory exemption. She wrote that the majority adding this uh, this new exemption, in, in her view, veers away from that comprehension of the, the statute's mission, and she would instead resist, as the Ninth Circuit did, diminishment of the act's overtime strictures. So that brings uh, the Encino Motors saga to hopefully a yes, conclusion. Case yes, has, Paul Clement maybe is, finally ended. Paul Clement is done uh, with this case for now. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the court also granted one new case this week, Stokeling versus United States. This is a case dealing with the Armed Career Criminal Act, which gives longer sentences to defendants who are repeat offenders and who commit violent felonies with guns. So the question here is whether a state robbery offense that includes the requirement of overcoming victim resistance as an element of the crime is categorically a violent felony when the state appellate courts have interpreted it to require only slight force to overcome resistance. And finally this week, the court also released an unusual statement respecting the petition for cert um, in a case called Deutsche Bank Trust Company versus Robert McCormick Foundation. So the court said it would delay considering this cert petition while the lower courts decide whether to give any relief to the parties based on a recently decided bankruptcy case, Merit Management Group versus FTI Consulting. The statement was signed only by Justices Kennedy and Thomas, and it noted that the court may not have a quorum in this case. So the scuttlebutt on appellate Twitter is that it's because it's likely several of the justices hold investments in mutual fund providers that are parties in this case. And so this means that um, seven justices are conflicted out of this case <laughs> and have to recuse, um, which is very problematic. The only time I've seen the court not have a quorum are in these suits where a crazy person sues a bunch of the justices. Mm -hmm. And since they're named in the suit, they can't participate. So it sounds like with this statement, the, the courts are trying to be like, hey, lower court, uh, give this the party's relief in this case so we don't have to have to deal with it. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens with that. So we recently spoke with Supreme Court reporter Mark Walsh. Mark is a SCOTUS blog contributor, and he's covered the Supreme Court for more than 20 years for a variety of outlets. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Mark. Thanks, Tiffany. Great to be here. Um, and tell us a little bit about all of the, the hats you wear. 
<laughs> well, uh, I don't want to eat up the, the whole time period, but uh, uh, you know, I do the uh, view from the courtroom column for SCOTUS blog, which is a bit of a sidelight for me because uh, SCOTUS blog has a great correspondent in Amy Howe who who covers the cases, and but. For the past several years, you know, because there are no cameras in the courtroom, I have uh, tried to just be on the lookout for interesting things, ironic things, uh, curious things. You are the camera in the courtroom. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I try to paint a a, a verbal sketch the way a SCOTUS blog contributor, an artist, Art Lean, paints uh, and draws a, a, you know— an artistic sketch. Also, I've covered the court for Education Week for uh, most of those years. Um, you know, that's a publication that covers uh, education policy. I look for an education angle in any case, and I often find some some unusual ones. And I write uh, once a month, basically, f- about the court in the ABA Journal, the American Bar Association Journal. So along with a dozen or so other reporters, as you mentioned, you're the eyes and ears inside mm-hmm. the courtroom. Could you tell us a little bit about the different justices and how they've changed the dynamic as each one of them has joined the bench? So uh, I joined uh, <laughs> joined the court. I joined <laughs> the court's press corps uh, in uh, the early 90s, just as uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall was retiring. I mean, I covered a few cases of his and a few opinions that came down. And then he had his big retirement in 1991. Am I remembering that right? Yeah. Uh, 91 or 92? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. And um, so Justice Thomas came on the bench and uh, I wouldn't say the dynamic changed much with him. He was asking some questions at the beginning of his tenure <laughs> uh, and then has gone into various long stretches of not asking any questions. Uh, but he did a couple years ago after Justice Scalia died. Uh, but when when Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined the court in 1993, you know it had already been sort of known as a hot bench since Justice Scalia had joined. But but you know that really kind of upped the ante because she was a very active questioner. She had served on the D.C. Circuit with him, and she uh, you know asked a lot of questions. And there were just stories written at that time like about the hot bench, and so that that changed it. Justice Breyer came along a year later. You know, he brought his kind of long, multi-part, prefatorial questions <laughs> to to the bench. Um, so then, you know, not not until Chief uh, Justice Roberts came along was was there another change. And and his uh, sort of distinction is that he uh, has been a little bit more humane than Chief Justice Rehnquist was. Um, um, Miguel Estrada has a uh, a line that, you know, I'm stealing from him that he, he said, Chief Justice Rehnquist used to interrupt you in the middle of the word if, <laughs> if the time ran out and the red light came on. And and, and Chief Justice Roberts will let you uh, finish your sentence. And the more recent justices have come. Uh, I mean, Justice Alito, he's a sharp questioner. Um, Justice Sotomayor asks a lot of questions. I think she sometimes annoys her colleagues, and we've seen some evidence of that recently. Uh, Justice Kagan, also a very sharp questioner. So again, you know, it's just a very active bench, except uh, for Justice Thomas. <laughs> and that oral argument, Chief Justice Roberts operates as a sort of traffic cop. Can you tell us a little bit about this role? Yeah, so there's kind of two distinct ways um, he has to do that sometimes. And one is when just, um, you know, Two or sometimes three justices are trying to ask a question at the same time. And even though they now can all see each other, they're not always looking at each other. They're looking at the counsel. 
and and they're talking over each other sometimes. And really, you know, the floor is up for grabs each time at each pause, really. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, so he will sometimes say, you know, who who should ask the question. And it's supposed to – there's sort of a rule of thumb. I think it's maybe written down that it's supposed to be the senior justice of the – of that two or that three, sure. and that's who he usually directs to ad, ask the question. Um, there is a, 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 a different uh, uh, dynamic when uh, sometimes uh, a justice will ask a question and the counsel will just barely have gotten something out when another justice interrupts. And sometimes I think the chief feels that's unfair and he will say, well, can we let the counsel mm-hmm. a- ask answer Justice Ginsburg's question or what have you? And and uh, he's had to do that a few times and not just to Justice Sotomayor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tell us something uh, interesting or common that goes on in the courtroom that, that people may not know about. So you've been in the courtroom. It's both large yet intimate. Mm-hmm. It's particularly intimate for counsel and the justices because they're quite close to each other. But it, it does uh, seat, you know, 300 or more people. And there are security personnel. There are some other court personnel. So there are some interesting things going on just in the regular course of events. Um, I mean, of course, the, the marshal bangs her gavel, Pam talking and brings the, the court uh, into session. She, like the clerk of the court, Scott Harris, they wear morning coats or morning uh, wear, just the old-fashioned mm-hmm. clothing worn also by the uh, – most members of the Solicitor General's office, uh, although not necessarily all the female members. And and uh, I was going to just tell a quick story that um, a couple terms ago, the, you know, there's a telephone on uh, the clerk's desk. He sits to the right of the justices and to the left of the bench if you're looking at the bench. And I've never seen this telephone used. It, it's, it doesn't ring. It has some <laughs> sort of silent uh, thing. But uh, a few terms ago, a note got passed to him. And um, he he got on the phone. So I'm perking up, looking at him, wondering, like, what, why would he be needing to call? And a few minutes later, an aide came to the curtains and had something in her hand and, and handed it to him. And he looked it over and then had a marshal's aide bring it to the chief justice. And I was able to figure out, but because there had been uh, someone appointed by the court to argue a question that that the respondent, um, the winning side below, was not defending. Mm-hmm. There's sort of a script, and there's there's a lot of scripts the court uses for some of its uh, proceedings for thanking that counsel. And the chief, I think, realized when he got to the bench, he didn't have the script, and he had you know about an hour to to get it, <laughs> and, and that's that's what it was. So that's an example of just something that goes on that that probably doesn't get noticed by the casual visitor. Yeah, whenever I go to the court and I end up getting into the courtroom, I love just sitting there and watching as the the justices, I don't know if it's their clerks or some other kind of aide, as they bring out the different things to p- prepare the the seat for each justice and to see, you know, coffee. Wh- which one needs three beverages <laughs> and wh- which wants, you know, several binders full of of uh, briefs and things. And it, it's just always very uh, interesting to, to watch, you know, right. that prepares before the If I could, you know, tell two quick stories about that. Um, One is from this term, uh, Justice uh, Gorsuch, who's still, you know, fairly new 
to the bench. He's been bringing like a magazine style folder full of the briefs, but and then it sort of stands up and it and it looks a, a bit odd at his end of the bench. And the first time he brought it, he also brought like a big binder. And the way he opened it was the long ways, and it made us think that, like, did he bring a laptop computer to the bench? That would be, <laughs> you know, there's no way. And it was not a laptop. It, it was just a big binder that he was opening long ways. And um, and then you mentioned the coffee. Um, it, it, it is typically someone from their chambers who bring their briefs and their beverages. And um, a few terms ago, when Justice Scalia was still alive, there had been an exchange in uh, an opinion uh, and I don't remember the opinion, and it was a very uh, uh, technical legal point. But but Justice Scalia was uh, mentioning uh, Sheets Coffee, and Sheets is like a convenience store chain. Yeah, I think out tends to be out in the outer suburbs and exurbs. And and Justice Kagan responded to the point again. I don't know exactly what point she was trying to make. I don't remember that part. But by referring to Seven Eleven Coffee, so it just <laughs> hit me that the next time the, they gathered at for court, I was going to observe their their beverage habits and who you know who brought a mug and who <laughs> brought a and it just so happens that on that that uh, day that uh, Justice Sotomayor came to the bench and she didn't have any kind of beverage and and she sent a note to a marshal's aide and that's usually for the aide to retrieve a law book or a brief or to pass a note to another justice and just a few minutes later you know the, the aide brought a nice mug of coffee or whatever beverage she prefers yeah. on the bench. Well, I think that's very important. You got to have your coffee. But Definitely. and it wasn't it Sotomayor who got into a dispute about the coffee, the kind of coffee that the court would serve with um with Justice Alito, I guess yeah. when she was the when junior she was justice, the junior justice and she took yeah, over the like cafeteria. Yeah. We talked about that. Yeah. That's funny. Um as you mentioned, there are a lot of people in the room when the court is in session. So can you tell us about some of the other players, the marshal, the clerk, others, and what are they doing during argument? So as I you know, said, so mostly the clerk and he has a, a top aide next to him. They're just sitting and listening. I mean, the clerk at the beginning of each um, – of most sessions of the court, they, they do swear in new members of the bar – and the uh, clerk has a you know role in getting that set up, and there's a whole procedure that goes on. And clerk has a very small Bible that he holds to swear in the new members, and and then just make sure they sit down. And again, looking for just little things that sometimes go wrong. A, a few uh, weeks ago, in this term, maybe a couple months ago, um, something kind of got messed up out of order, and there was a whole group that got forgotten in the. Uh, the order and the, the chief justice had, had, oh, had no. already uh, the, the marshal had already banged the session to a close, and the chief justice was caught the eye of, of Clerk Scott Harris, who kind of indicated like, "Oh, we forgot one group," and, <laughs> and he had to say, "Wait, wait a sec, court's not over," and they swore in this other group. So <laughs> that would be funny. sad for that group if they they had to sit there and they never got. Sworn I don't in. know if that's proper parliamentary procedure. So <laughs> oh, after you've gaveled out, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, so in a recent SCOTUS blog article, you mentioned the new Shonda Rhimes legal drama for the people about the Southern District of New York. So I haven't watched it yet. It's on my Hulu queue. But 
Are you watching it, and how does it stack up to other TV uh, dramas about the law? So uh, I think I've only seen a couple episodes, and you know I'm giving it a chance. Uh, uh, I think it seems promising. I do like that kind of show. My favorite was always um, the original Law and Order. Oh yeah. And uh, you know it was very formulaic, but it it had a rhythm to it, and uh, you know the uh, St- the actor Stephen Hill played. Uh, the the older district attorney, the Manhattan DA named Adam Schiff. I looked this up and uh, to <laughs> uh, jog my memory, and and he was really modeled on um, Robert Morgenthau, who was the the longtime uh, Manhattan district attorney, uh, and that's the that's the person who hired Sonia Sotomayor, as she describes in her uh, uh, oh. memoir, uh, for her job as a prosecutor in New York County, which is Manhattan, and. Interesting. Yeah, I've seen For the People. I think there's only three episodes out. It's it's pretty good. I'm giving it a chance, but it's no Law and Order, although SVU is my my favorite. <laughs> well, The Good Wife is my favorite legal drama, although, you know, I'm not sure you can beat uh, good old classic Law and Order. <laughs> I was going to mention one other thing along this line, and yeah. that is, you know, in this age where we have all these good Shondaland uh, dramas and a lot of good Washington dramas, I mean, yeah. Scandal and House of Cards and Bones. Bones, designated survivor, homeland. What? Uh, I, I can't understand why they can't come up with a good Supreme Court drama. Yeah. And and you know <laughs> this may be you may be too young, but in two thousand two, there were two of them at the same time, and they didn't last very long. Um, that goes back what like sixteen years. One was on ABC called uh, The Court, and it was with Sally Field. And she actually came to the Supreme Court to do some research and sat in on some arguments. <laughs> was she like the chief justice? Or? She was the new justice, a mm, new member okay. of the court. And uh, that lasted three episodes. Mm. Um, <laughs> the, the other one on CBS was called First Monday and had James Garner and um, Joe Montagna. And it was pretty good. I think it lasted more than three episodes. The, the thing I remember about the ABC drama is that uh, my friend David Savage of – covered the court for many years for the Los Angeles Times. Mm -hmm. He received a call from an actor who was cast as a reporter in the court press room, and it was a young actor, but he must have been a method actor who said, you know, asked him a lot of questions probably, but he said, do you think it would be logical, would it make sense for for my character to be playing Nerf basketball in the the court press room with the other (laughs) reporters? And I think this kind of stumped Davis Savage like, Sure, we don't do that regularly, but <laughs> but now we do joke about like whether we should install a Nerf basketball. And well, it wouldn't be the only basketball court in yeah, the Supreme Court. It right. wouldn't be the highest court though. <laughs> right, Definitely. and we don't get to go to that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there was some actually some good Scotus scenes in the West Wing during certain seasons. I feel like those could be like flushed out and. Yeah, maybe we'll make that an extension of SCOTUS 101. We'll come up with a pilot for a new Supreme Court. (laughs) I like it. John Malcolm will approve. Yeah. Shifting gears a bit. Have there been any oral arguments where you're in the court and you thought one side was definitely going to win based on how the argument went, but then the court went the other way in the completely different direction? Well, you know, I do think this has happened a lot more times than I can remember, and it's sort of hard (laughs) to like look back and find some of those. So one that did come to mind that was fairly recent from, you know, a couple years ago was in the the Fisher versus University of Texas case, mm-hmm. which dealt with affirmative action at the University of Texas and it was the, you know, 2 years ago was the second time the Supreme Court was dealing with the case 
And, you know, everyone kind of knew it was an eight member court. Uh, mm-hmm. Justice Kagan was recused. So it was very important. You know, Justice Kennedy really kind of held the cards um, based on uh, what had happened with the first case uh, uh, where the court actually kind of overwhelmingly sent it back to the Fifth Circuit. But with some reporting that came out was that it had almost gone the other way. So he, you know, had a lot of tough questions for the University of Texas. And he he also had suggested maybe another remand. Um, but in the end, he wrote the opinion upholding the affirmative action plan at the University of Texas. So that and that was kind of the surprise of that term. Yeah, I think Fisher, too, surprised us all. It, yeah, had a lot of us scratching our heads. <laughs> uh, so turning to another piece that you wrote uh, for Education Week, some reflections on Linda C. Brown, the lead plaintiff in Brown versus Board of Education, who recently passed away. I really enjoyed your article. Um, so you mentioned traveling to Topeka for the 50th anniversary of the decision. Can you tell us a little bit about that trip and what you learned about Linda Brown and her case? Yeah, well, well, thanks uh, for that, Elizabeth. It, it, it uh, you know, it's such an important case in American history. The the overall Brown versus Board of Education case. There's a lot going on, you know, with it because the court took up five cases and then uh, four were from states, and so the court handled those in the Brown decision and handled the one from the District of Columbia in a separate decision called Bowling versus Sharp. Uh, so there's a you know huge history to all those cases, um, but but the Topeka case it's from Middle America, and so in 2004, um, the Brown Family Foundation had actually been instrumental in acquiring the formerly all black school where Linda Brown and 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 generations of young. Uh, African-American uh, Topeka students had gone to school and there were other um, all-black schools in, in Topeka and restoring it and, and turn, you know, the federal government got involved and, and it was turned into a national historic site. And and so I was there actually not at the time of the dedication, which included President George W. Bush and Justice Stephen Breyer and a lot of dignitaries, but about two months before that, it was kind of a preview and that was a good time to write about it and get people interested and and um, and I do remember it was also they it turned it into somewhat more of a general civil rights museum that covered a lot of things in addition to the brown cases. But when you entered the main door of that school, you were given the choice of entering, you know, like a white entrance or a colored entrance, which to just hammer home. That's what yeah. oh, wow. was part of the you know Jim Crow history. Um, and then, you know, as I described in that piece to just go to some of the. The other uh, locations that were important, you know, I think the Brown family house was no longer there, but to go to the area where they lived, which was near the railroad tracks, and she had to cross these tracks and busy streets to get to the bus that took her to the black school when the when the white neighborhood school was just a few blocks away. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, to just, you know, as I said, to kind of walk in some of her footsteps was, was meaningful to me. Yeah, one thing that I didn't know that I learned from your piece. Um, you mentioned that Linda never actually got to attend the school that she fought to integrate. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that was even just surprising to me as I realized that when she died, you know, a week or so ago, um, because I, you know, found uh, uh, she was someone who was uh, uh, sometimes out front and sometimes a bit in the background uh, about the history and the legacy. Um, and But but in one public appearance, she uh made clear that by the time the Brown case was decided uh, in 1954, uh, she was a sixth grader that spring, and it was time for her to move on to uh, junior high. 
And in, in Kansas, the, the state law merely permitted segregation in the largest uh, school districts and cities. And, and of course, Topeka did uh, – and only in the elementary schools. And, and so it was mm-hmm. not like the Deep South where state law required it and it was pervasive and, and the – and the schools were, you know, black schools were much poor. The, there was a lot of testimony in the Topeka case that that the black schools were, um, I mean, they were found to be equal. They probably weren't perfectly equal, um, uh, separate but equal. But but they were better than probably uh, the schools in the, the deep south. And uh, she, you know, then went to this junior high that had, you know, not been segregated, and she never really got to segregate a school herself, per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one one more thing about this piece. So you also mentioned picking up a copy of the book A Time to Lose, which was by the Kansas Assistant Attorney General, a, a young lawyer who defended the state's segregation law, and um, how, you know, as you can tell by the, the title of, of the book, A Time to Lose, um, maybe his whole heart wasn't in defending the law. So were you surprised by his account of the case? I was because, um, you know, I, I just didn't know, uh, you know, the, again, there's a book called Simple Justice by Richard Kluger that's kind of considered the gold standard and it's an excellent book, but it's very daunting and it's about all the cases. And thus, you know, when it comes to each one, there's there's maybe not as much detail, even though there's quite a bit of detail. Um, so I was really looking, you know, and I founded this book, the, the Time to Lose, when I was in Topeka at the Kansas University Press. And... He, it's a very humble book. He, you know, he was a young assistant attorney general, and the uh, attorney general of the state had some political considerations in mind and didn't want to go to Washington, and they were going to maybe not even go defend their state law. And the, and the board of education of Topeka chose not to defend its policy in the Supreme Court. And um, so, you know, all, all of a sudden he finds himself on a train to Washington, and he's writing out his uh, his statement that he's going to tell before the Supreme Court when he knows he's going with against Thurgood Marshall and, and with John Davis, a former presidential candidate who's representing South Carolina and is really sort of the, the main defender of separate but equal. And, and I'm just rereading that book now because uh, uh, and really finding, again, equally enjoyable. And I would recommend it. Uh, it. It's probably a little bit hard to find, but mm-hmm. uh, I would recommend it. We'll do some research and see if we can tweet out a link to Amazon or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mark, we've really enjoyed this conversation, and we just have one final question for you, um, one we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? So, um, you know, a couple of your recent guests uh, picked uh, some, some – uh, Candidates I might have chosen, um, such as Robert Jackson, I think was uh, chosen by John Elwood. And uh, Thurgood Marshall, uh, I think anyone would want to talk to him and was chosen, I think, maybe by Ginger uh, Anders uh, or some other recent guest. So I thought, you know, I uh, I don't know uh, every justice who all your guests have, have chosen, but I thought maybe <laughs> I would um, uh, pick Justice Lewis Powell uh, since uh, – there's some, you know, thought that Justice Kennedy might retire uh, this term or, or sometime soon, and he he succeeded Lewis Powell, and um, uh, Justice Powell actually was, you know, was president of the American Bar Association. He was the he was involved in his local school board in Richmond uh, and his state board of education in Virginia. So there'd be some education things to talk to him about that he, you know. Things that uh, came out in his opinions. Uh, he wrote the uh, critical uh, 
uh, concurrence in the Baki decision on affirmative action. He he uh, voted to uphold uh, sodomy uh, laws and later came to, to regret that, as his biographer has said. And um, so I just think that would be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I think that's one we uh, we haven't heard. Yeah, you're um, the first. Well, we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia. We're going Uh-oh. to try to stump our guest, Mark Walsh. And these are all questions about the Supreme Court's building. Are you ready? Go. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> the first question. How far is the advocate's podium from the bench at the Supreme Court? Oh, gosh. As I, as I described, it's quite intimate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to guess, but I'm going to say six feet. So uh, this may not be a fair question because we don't have an exact uh, number, but a well-informed source, uh, someone we know from our office who's argued uh, 27, cases. 27 cases for the Supreme Court, he said it's roughly one meter. And we had an intern call the court, and I, I think our intern spoke to a couple, a couple different people who didn't have a clear answer for him, but said it's close enough for the chief justice and the advocate to almost shake hands. <laughs> yeah, so also if anyone out there listening knows the exact measurement— let us know. Do you think they'd let us bring a measuring tape in? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go, you yeah. know, just head over there. <laughs> and don't get to, you know, run run around and play in that uh, in the well of the the court. But it, but I have had occasion to just sort of walk by the lectern, and, and I agree it, it is probably no more than a meter or so. But yeah, it's very close. Okay, second question. Today the bench is curved, so there are two wings on either end. Which chief justice was responsible for changing the shape of the bench? So I think that came in under Chief Justice Berger. That's right. Yes, Chief Justice Warren Berger had the bench altered in 1972 from a straight line to a winged shape to provide sight and sound advantages over the original design. Um, So when he joined the court, he said the justices were talking over each other because they couldn't see or hear each other very well. And so he wanted to change that. And uh, your colleague at SCOTUS blog, Andrew Hamm, um, actually had an article about this, I think, in the last week, uh, which is where we got the idea for that mm-hmm. question. Third question. Congress appropriated $9,740,000 for the building and furnishing of the Supreme Court. Do you know how much money the court returned to the Treasury upon completion? Oh, gosh. A ballpark is fine. I, I don't. What, what was the full figure again? 9740000 And they didn't spend it all. Uh, okay, so it's not not a trick question. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll just throw out a ballpark of one million dollars. They returned at ninety four thousand dollars, which I think is pretty good. Yeah, I think that's admirable. And Returning they came money. in. Yeah, I think they also came in um, on time with the completion as well. On so time, we're on and schedule. Under budget. Yeah, sounds good to me. <laughs> okay, next question: When the court was built, which justice called it quote? almost bombastically pretentious, wholly inappropriate for a quiet group of old boys such as the Supreme Court. So who's around? This was around 1934, 35 that it opened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gosh. Um, Could we give him a hint? Do you have a hint to give him? Uh, this individual uh, became chief justice, but was not chief justice at that time, but was on the court. Right. Okay. That's a big help. <laughs> Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, God, who became Chief Justice after? Because I was going to guess Justice Frankfurter, but that is not. Correct. He was. He was okay. That's my guess. I know he didn't become Chief Justice. So it was Harlan Fisk Stone. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think he was just mad that he didn't get um, recognized in the building itself. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, if he was chief justice, he's recognized now with a bust. Yeah. Presumably. Exactly. Somewhere. <laughs> but after, you know. So there are th- sculptures of three chief justices near the main west entrance to the court. Can you name one of the three? The main west entrance. Um, the tr- I don't think we go in that entrance very often. <laughs> <laughs> so two of the I, two of the sculptures are the chief justices when they were younger. I think. Yes. It's not like they're adult forms, which seems a little odd to me. <laughs> and then the third is just the the adult. Well, is it, <laughs> is it Chief Justice Warren? No. So we've got Taft, which makes sense since he. Got Congress to appropriate the funds. John. I think he's depicted as a as a boy. As a boy, yeah. Um, John Marshall, everybody's favorite, and then Charles Evans Hughes, who was the Chief Justice when uh, when the court was completed. So, well, I think you did a great job, and I <laughs> just hope- so so. But I did mention <laughs> Chief Justice Hughes was Chief. Uh, Definitely. When it, when it, well, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great conversation. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thanks, Tiffany. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates, sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.